contemplating the message for Resurrection Sunday, I was actually going to do a message. I had it all worked out on the seven first words of Christ after the resurrection, had it all penned out. I was really excited. And then this morning I got up and God decided to do something different. So I, I put it together. I was blessed by it. And the thing that inspired me was um, my anniversary, uh, 29 years married to this wonderful woman. And the reason why it inspired me is because one of the things that I love to do on Michelle's birthday or Mother's Day or our anniversary is I shower her with flowers. Um, and, and you go to our house right now and there's, there's flowers everywhere. Um, I am by no means a gardener. <laughs> Anything I touch dies. <laughs> But I do, I do thank the giftings of the gardeners in the world. Uh, when Michelle and I have traveled um, in, in our time together in married life, we've gone to places and we always have seen these resplendent gardens around the world. And I find myself captivated by the skills that others possess that I do not. I, I appreciate the beauty that they've created. And I've always found myself uh, refreshed and encouraged and I just, I love spring because um, I look forward to the flowers. I look forward to the beautiful gardens. And I, you know, one of the, my earliest childhood memories, my mother was uh, president of the Coronado uh, Floral or Floral Association, uh, the, the garden club or the Coronado Garden Club. I can't remember what it was. And she would make me enter uh, every, every flower show, some sort of an entry. And um, it was the very first time I ever received a ribbon. I think it was a participation ribbon, but I, I got one. Um, and and I, it, it's just one of those things I grew up appreciating in the springtime, this, this picture of flowers and gardens. And, and then we would drive around Coronado and see what, what houses got first, second, and third on each block, and they would award it based on their gardens. And so there were some just remarkable gardens in Coronado, beautiful plantings. And uh, they had different categories and different ways to judge them. And so I just grew up with that appreciation. So I thought, as the Lord uh, awakened me this morning, that we would take a look at some gardens in relation to Resurrection Sunday. And um, I want to visit four of them this morning, four gardens. Um, And I I, I think as we we take a look at the variety of these gardens, you're going to see a theme in each of them. And that theme is, um, I was trying to kind of piece together what, what I wanted to reflect in it, but it's the idea of the love of the gardener and, and his love for creation. And so obviously the, the first garden we're going to take a look at is found, and you can take notes if you want to check it out later because um, that's important. Um, I, you, you want to make sure that what I'm telling you is true. Um, I am a politician in addition to a minister, so... The, the first passage is found in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And you don't have to turn there. I'm not going to read it. I'm, I'm going to give a synopsis of it. Um, and that brings us to the first garden, which is the garden of? There you go. You're, you're smarter than you look. And when the thing. Uh, this is this, this garden. And I, I pulled up on the internet some pictures. And I, a few of the pictures were a bit racy. And um, I, I was trying to avoid nudity to the best of my ability. Um, that one is really racy. So we're going to go to this one. That's a little easier. Some of you will be going, oh, this is so... <laughs> I don't know if I can handle that. It takes us back to the beginning of time. Uh, you find that in Genesis chapter 2. It's a beautiful garden filled with the creation of God. And, and in this creation, as you go through the creation story... 
Uh, you can't think of the garden without being drawn to the creator because it's his handiwork. It, it says, out of nothing, God created. Uh, Barah, which we, we can't fathom nothing. We don't even know how to describe nothing. Even to describe nothing, we say nothing is, and is is the verb to be, which is des- describing something. Nothing is darkness. Nothing is the void of something. We're using the verb to be. And uh, we don't even know what nothing is. We live in a world of matter. You've heard me say the joke, and I do it often at funerals about the three scientists that said we don't need God anymore. We figured out how to create man out of the basic dirt of the earth. And uh, they told the junior scientist, you go and tell God we don't need him anymore. So he went and said, God, we don't need you anymore. We figured out how to make man out of common elements right out of the dirt. And he said, oh, yeah. And he said, yeah. And he said, I'll tell you what, we'll have a contest tomorrow. You'll make a man out of dirt. I'll make a man out of dirt. And the scientist in pride says, no problem. And so the day came and uh, the scientist, God said, you're going to go first. The scientist said, no problem. They reached down to get dirt. And God goes, wait a minute, get your own dirt. So the... (laughs) We live, we live in a world of matter. Matter can be, either, be neither created nor destroyed by human hands. It's matter. And so when, the, when there was nothing, Barach, God created. And in this creation, in this garden, the garden was a garden of perfection. The garden was formed out of love. And, and it, was, it was a garden of goodness. Uh, a couple of thoughts I wrote down. All creation was good according to the record there. But it was only the creation of man and woman that was said to be very good. Very good. It says God created this, it was good. God created that, it was good. God created this, it was good. And then God created man and woman, it was very good. Now there was one thing in the Garden of Eden that wasn't good. Only one thing in the Garden of Eden that wasn't good. Which is fascinating because it begins with the creation of man when he says very good. He uses a term to describe himself in the Hebrew called Elohim. Uh, we translate that in the English Bible that where they, they say let us make man in our image. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute, Christianity's monotheistic, one God. Why is he using a plural statement for himself? Let us make man in our image. He's speaking of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Uh, I don't have time to describe that to you. If you want to have a conversation later, I'll take you to lunch. You could pay if you wanted, because there's a lot of you. <laughs> but this idea of, of three persons, one God, let us, and it's a relational Godhead. God is a relational uh, creator, and he creates man with a desire for relationship. And that's, that is a timely message in this day and age where we are enamored with our electronics and we're all sitting in the living room together and maybe it's just my family, but it's fascinating how we're all sitting in the same room, not talking to each other, but glued to our electronic devices. Anyone else have that problem in the room? Anyone lying? And maybe you're texting one another, but you're not having verbal communication. Um, and that, that is the world we live in where we're all alone, though we're surrounded by our electronics. And I think man is struggling with relationships in this day and age. We long to be loved and we long to love. Uh, some have figured out ways to survive uh, being all alone. Um, they have managed to maybe inebriate themselves or find some sort of a escape route to avoid any type of relationship because to have a relationship with anyone on this earth is a problem. And the reason why it's a problem is because every person on this earth is a fallen creature and we're all selfish and every relationship is going to involve pain. It's going to involve difficulty and heartache. Uh, You will have your heart broken. You already probably have and you will continue to. But does that mean we abandon relationship? Does that mean that we avoid it? It's not good that we would be alone. It's not good that we would be alone. And here in this garden of perfection, God created man in his image. That image is a relational being. 
He longs to have a relationship with us and for us to have a relationship with each other. And in order to have that relationship as creatures with a free will, in this garden um, of Eden, God created an act of love and, and he, he created in this garden two trees. One was the tree of life and the other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this, no, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, interestingly enough, uh, the garden had physical dimensions, but it also had spiritual dimensions. And, and as you study this garden and you see these two trees, the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God had created an opportunity for man to love him and to be in a pure relationship with him. So for love to occur, there needs to be a choice. Otherwise, you're a prisoner. Uh, I, don't, I, I haven't been successful in being married to Michelle for 29 years because I wear a wedding ring. Or that I, uh, some ink stain dried upon some line, as Glenn Campbell's song recites. Or that I'd said some words in front of uh, witnesses, uh, April 21st, 1990. I, I, I have been in a relationship with Michelle for 29 years because I love her. I love her. She's had the option to leave, and so have I. I think her temptation was probably greater than mine. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. And she put up with a lot through the course of my life and my trials. She would probably say the same on her end. But as you look at this, you, you think to yourself, it's a choice. And, and trust me, in 29 years of marriage, we have had our difficulties. We've had some really hard times. Our first year of marriage was very difficult. And she, she couldn't figure me out for the life, life of her. She was trying to figure me out. And I was difficult to... I, I, didn't communicate. Uh, men use gruntings. <laughs> she didn't quite have the lexicon for that. And I, she troubled me because she used far too many words than were necessary. And I'm like, get to the point. There's a lot of fluff here. Where is the, the line of reasoning in relation to this? There's a lot of emotion attached to it. And we've gone everywhere but where we're supposed to be headed. And I'm trying to f- figure this out. I want to fix the problem, not exasperate it. Um, and, and, and it was difficult for me. I, I couldn't comprehend that. I couldn't. Why are you crying? We can, we don't, you're crying. I, I don't understand. And yet, 29 years later, I've come to understand her in a greater capacity and appreciate her so much that that is a gift God gave me. Now, that came through a lot of trials and difficulties, and for her as well. And we're more knitted than we've ever been in 29 years. And I know some of you have been married 60 years. I I saw a couple laying in bed and on their 75th wedding anniversary, she's passing, he's holding her hand. They died within five hours of each other. And I'm just thinking to myself, that's pretty cool. I know in this room too, with one and two marriages ending in divorce, that there's a lot of broken relationships. I know that uh, gatherings at family time are difficult. Where do you go for Easter? Where do you go for the Christmas meal? What set of the family do you spend time with? If not marriage, let's just say personal relationships, interpersonal relationships, where you're going through the supermarket and you see somebody who you've never reconciled with and you take the other aisle to avoid them. Childhood friends you haven't called in a long time. Family members that offended you and you've been hurt and you just really haven't reconciled that. You see, we understand broken relationships. And typically what we do in our life is if somebody 
you know, we, we enter into a relationship expecting that person to make our life better. Well, that, that, let me just give you some counsel right now. That marriage is not going to survive. It's not going to survive. Yeah, you, you, you project on them everything that you should be doing. That marriage is not going to survive. You see, the, the picture in this is God created this garden. It was good, it was good, it was good. Creates man in his image relationally and says it's not good that man should be alone. So he forms woman out of the side of man, not from the head that she should rule over him or from his foot that he should rule over her, but from the side that they'd walk together. And, and in this picture of mutual submission, the Bible says submitting to one another in the fear of God, you have this relationship. You have this relationship where you serve one another. And, and you, you, you lay your life down as God has laid his life down for you and you lay your life down for one another. You come to understand that person. It requires selflessness, which is not a common trait in our culture today. We are a selfish people. And God knew that if he was going to have this relationship with man, it had to be voluntary. As I said earlier, I, I, I'm not married to Michelle because of a wedding ring or some ink stain dried upon some line. I love her. At any moment she can leave and at any moment I can leave. Our marriage is based on our relationship with the Lord and with each other. We're called into this. God has said, let what God has brought together, let no man separate. I am not here to say that there are, you know, and, and it's not the unpardonable sin to divorce. That's not what I'm saying. I, God does hate divorce because it just breaks hearts. And any children that are, you know, from a family of, of divorced parents knows the pain of that. And we, we know what it's like to have our heart broken. But interestingly enough, there are times in life where you have hurt somebody so bad that they just can't remain with you and survive. What you've done is just beyond ability for them to process. And your inability to yield and to change and to lay your life down and to say, help me, forgive me. And it's lip service. And yet, God looks at us knowing that he, he created us with a will. And he says to us in the Garden of Eden, this is the tree of life and this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and all these trees you can name them and all of the trees you can freely eat except for this tree. Of this tree, don't eat of it. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of this tree. And I'm going to give you a really good reason why. When you eat it, you will die. Good reason to stay away from it. Don't eat that. You'll die. And really what God was saying, and, and we speculate, what was the fruit? Was it an apple? Was it a, I know what it was. It was a persimmon. God forbid persimmons. They're just awful. <laughs> I, w- I would look at that and go, nah. And you, I get people telling me all the time, oh, you haven't had the right persimmon. I have, and it's still awful. So don't, <laughs> would you like a persimmon cookie? No, no, I'd rather have a cracker. It's just, there's more flavor. It's more, deli- I've insulted people. I have that gift, so stay with me. It doesn't matter what the fruit was. It, it, it doesn't matter what the fruit was. You see, the fruit itself was an exit sign. It's your chance to leave. There's the door. If you don't want to be in relationship with me, you, you, you don't want to live in unity, then you can go. God forbid, if you go dying, you'll die because I'm the author of life, I'm the sustainer of life, but you're the only creature in all creation that I've given the ability to love me and for me to love you, and it's a choice. And in this garden, he gave us 
the free will to either follow him or reject him. It was a spiritual command, not not in, in any other sense. It was a physical tree, but a spiritual command. And as a result, not only was the Garden of Eden a place of perfection, not only was it a place of creation, not only was it a place of love and created for us in that capacity, not only was it good, and not only were we created very good, but it was also a garden where sin was born. Sin. That's a tough term in our culture these days. Nobody likes that word. Sin is real simple. It just means missing the mark, failing to be perfect. And I think in that estimation, we all qualify. And, and if you have a difficulty qualifying for it, there's a reason why your relationships on this earth are having issues right now. You're not perfect. You're not. And in relation to your relationship with God, I think we all could use some help. Hey, thank you. One person agrees. <laughs> it wasn't eating the fruit that caused us to fall. Sin was not in eating the fruit. Sin came in the breaking of the relationship. That's what breaks hearts. That's what devastates lives. And when you break that relationship, with that comes shame and betrayal and disappointment and sorrow. And sin was born. And it was, it was Eve who was tempted by Satan. And the temptation always comes in that capacity. Did God really say? Really, it's, it's, it boils down to authority. Is, is he the creator? Out of nothing you were created. He created you with a free will to have a relationship with him and to honor him and to live by his rules. It's his dirt, his, his air, his water. We're living on it. We're, we're feeding from it and we're drinking from it. And we play by his rules. And yet man decided that he didn't want any part of it. People say, well, Eve ate first. Well, it also says that Adam was supposed to be tending and protecting from any enemies. He failed to be the covering for his wife. And, and the, the lie was, did God really say, eating of this, this, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll have your eyes opened. Did God really say? I love what one author says. He says, when Adam and Eve questioned the authority of God, the allurement placed before them was that they could become as God, defining good and evil. You get to be the author of it. It's not adultery, it's a choice. It's a fling. You get to decide. It's not alcoholism, it's just I'm, I'm Irish. <laughs> if that's true, I'd be in trouble. I, I don't have an anger issue. I'm Italian. Sorry, I insulted our Gambinos in here. That's all right now. I'm Scottish. I'm cheap. <laughs> Good and evil is defined by fallen humanity is born out of a spirit of rebellion that results in the disintegration of life. You get to make your own rules. Why bother to be in a relationship where you have to be home at a certain hour because the person that you've committed your life to wants to know where you are? You can stay out late with your buddies. You can do as you please. You don't have to give an accounting to anyone. You don't have to lay your life down. You don't have to dwell with them with understanding. They need to shut up, do as they're told, and like it. And if they don't, you'll let them know. I am in charge of this house. You're going to be all alone You'll be all alone. And you want to make your own rules? Make them. 
But you're all alone. And what happens in this place of questioning the authority of God, this allurement placed before Eve, that you could become like God, defining your good and evil, your terms. Everyone does what seems right in their own eyes. We redefine marriage. We redefine life. We redefine good. It's situational. You get to make up the rules as you go. And we're making them up so quickly we can't even keep up with them. Uh, Vice President Biden is, what way, what, what is the rule this week? <laughs> Seri- I mean, he, th- I did this my whole life. I, sorry, I just had to, it's, a, it's, the best, I, it's the best one I can think of. You got a better one, talk to me and I'll do it in the service we're not going to have. <laughs> in the first garden, in this garden of Eden, God spoke and humanity denied that he had. And then humanism was born. And man became the decider of what is good and evil. And now instead of having justice, we have social justice. Social justice is where 51% of the people get to decide what the other 49%, whether they're good or evil. And truth will always be in the minority. Because nobody wants anyone else to tell them what to do when they're living their own life. And I have no authority, nor do I need that. It's a sad day. We've aborted more children in California than the entire population of Canada. But it's not a baby. It's not a baby. It's a blob of tissue. It's such an unpopular position. Pastor, just shut it. It isn't a popular position. Neither was it to be an abolitionist. So what? It's truth. You stand upon that. And in this, this sad day where we are going to be the arbiters between right and wrong, we come into this conflict in life and it becomes a sad day for humanity because we find that we can decide who's acceptable and who isn't. We now judge people based on their melanin or lack of melanin. Those people. We're arbiters of our own right and wrong. It's situational. If your political beliefs are in controversy with my own, you're a fascist. You have no right to speak. We'll silence you. We'll scream at you. We don't reason together. We don't have a relationship. You are no longer allowed in my world. There's no communication. You hold to this position, you are persona non grata, I don't need you, I have others that I can be with. And now we're divided. And we justify our hatred. And that works on both sides of the aisle, by the way. No longer do we have relationship. We only, we only stay with people of like mind. It's that Hegelian dialectics. Where every crisis causes us to be isolated even more and then we're pitted against one another. And we give up our freedom for the sake of security and we receive neither as the world burns around us. A sad day. Sin was born in the Garden of Eden. But in the Garden of Eden, the seed was planted, and this is the good news. This is what they call ulangelion in the Greek. It means good news. 
And this is the proto-evangelicum, where you get the word evangelical just means somebody who declares the good news, ulangelion. The proto-evangelicum was declared in the Garden of Eden to Eve that Satan will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head, and from you will come the Messiah, the one who will reestablish this relationship, the one that will reconcile. You know, in a lot of cases, the reason why there's a division in relationships is because somebody's been wronged and justice has to prevail. There's reason to divorce if there's been beatings. If there's been infidelity. God doesn't like it, but this has to be reconciled. Someone needs to repent. Hard words for people to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? It doesn't exist. You drove me to this. That's, that's what we do. We don't own it. We project it. And the seed of humanism and sin were planted in the garden, but so too was the seed of salvation in this first garden. And the story of redemption begins in this garden as well. The story of redemption is fallen man having taken the exit from God's presence and divorced him. Living on our own and seeing the death that we have, we've been sowing to and now we're reaping and we're looking around and we're saying, what's the hope? What's the hope? I mean, this, this community has been devastated. What's the hope? Well, fascinatingly enough, we come to the second garden. And the second garden is an odd one. It's a desert. It's this wilderness in this desert, in this picture where, where Christ is being tempted, he, he goes into this wilderness driven by the Spirit. It's in, it's in um, I think, Matthew 4. Yeah, Matthew 4. He's baptized, and then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, drives him into the wilderness where he's without food for 40 days. And you think, how can a desert be a garden? Well, my brother-in-law, um, Michelle's brother, is a remarkable man remarkable. He's a builder, and he's, he's probably, and this isn't an exaggeration, he is probably the best builder in the United States for custom homes. He's been selected by all the other builders to be the best in the country. He builds $5 million to $15 million homes in Vegas. He's built Celine Dion's home and Janet Jackson's home. I've seen these things, and the innovations that he comes up with are remarkable, but he builds them on the surface of the sun, Las Vegas. People in Vegas in the summer go to hell to avoid the heat. It is awful. And he went there from Colorado when he was young with a U-Haul van and a couple of thousand dollars in his pocket, and he, he's been unbelievably successful. And, and in doing this, he, he comes to Vegas, and, and the hardest thing is I have taken tours in his properties, and I've been with him to see it. The hardest thing is you build these resplendent homes, but then you have to do landscaping in the front. And you're, you're drilling through just hard, deadpan ground. You've got to put some topsoil, but you can't put certain plants because the sun will bake it and, it and it's shallow and you have to do certain plantings and then and you can only pick certain types of plants. But I'll tell you, when you get the right combination, there's amazing life in the desert. And there's something beautiful about it. It is arid. It is dry. It is a place of, of distance and struggle. And the, the desert, interestingly enough, is the birthplace of a mirage. 
I don't know if you've ever driven through the desert and you look in the distance, you go, wow, that's a large body of water. Only to get there and just see more desert. Now, I'm in a car with air conditioning and a big bottle of water next to me, so it's not, but if I'm hiking, I'm, I'm running for that. Only to realize I've wasted and expended energy and moisture for nothing. And Jesus was in this wilderness for 40 days and nights. He was without food, the scripture says. Fascinating. I've shared with you, the most I've ever fasted on a water-only fast is 15 days. First three days into the fast, the hunger pains just shut down. They just go away. And then the fourth day, you're like, the first three days, literally the first three days, I spent 11 hours looking in the refrigerator. Oh, 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 baby back ribs. Oh, yeah. And you're salivating. And then by the fourth day, it's, you, don't, you don't care anymore. It's like, and the amazing thing is your body isn't consuming and eliminating food. So all the energy of the body is, is reduced. The expenditure of body energy is reduced. So you're sleeping less. Five hours, you wake up refreshed. Sometimes four hours. Everything you read, you retain. It's, it's like a matrix. You know, you, you watch every flutter of a hummingbird's wing. You're moving out of the way of bullets as you're coming. Just... <laughs> You're just in a zone because the body is consuming the fat, which is a high-octane fuel. It's very efficient, and you're burning that instead of carbohydrates, and you're in ketosis. So all your chromosomes have all their defense mechanisms up. Anyone who does a keto diet, you know what I'm talking about. You're just in the zone. I'm reading, and I'm retaining it all. I'm like, this is amazing. And yet just you're thinking, I don't ever want to eat again. This is awesome. And you're digging it, and your relationship with the Lord, your prayer time, it's, it's, and the struggles that you have in these other areas of life have kind of dissipated, and you're focused on God. And the Lord is there 40 days without food, and then the scripture says in Matthew 4 that he was hungry. After 40 days, he was hungry. And it's not one of those things where you go, oh, duh. You know, like, ha, 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 hungry, no kidding. No, what it was saying is he's dying, because once you get to this place where you've been fasting and you've used all of your fat resources and the body has nothing to consume in and of itself, it starts to go after the internal organs. And that's why you see these babies in, in uh, Somalia or in Ethiopia with the bloated bellies because it's consuming their internal organs and it's, it's detrimental and they're going to die and there's no turning back. And their eyes are yellow. Their kidneys are shutting down. And so when it said he was hungry, what happens to the human body is you're fasting, you run out of all the, the reserves and then when it's it's critical and you're going to die, your body goes click and every neuron and fiber in your being is saying, eat something now, quickly, otherwise you're going to die. And, and you'll eat the kidney out of a rotten rhinoceros. You're like, feed me, I'm starving. And so when it said he was hungry, what it was saying is he was dying. And it's at that moment that Satan comes to tempt him. He tempted Jesus three times. He says, turn these stones into bread. And I'll tell you what, at times like that, everything looks like food. You're like, that looks edible. That looks like pasta. It's grass in the backyard with pesto. (laughs) At this moment, though, Jesus is divine. He can't lay down... He can't lay claim, excuse me, to his power without forfeiting his mission. He can't do anything in his deity. He has to operate completely in his humanity. He's being tested like all of us, but yet was without sin. And the garden is, I should say the garden in this desert is a place of deception. 
And, and in those three temptations, Satan quotes God's word, but he uses it out of context. Did God really say, cast yourself off this building? And Jesus would respond each time with the word of God. Because the failure in the garden was to avoid the word of God. And here in this, in, in this lush, perfect garden in Eden, man disobeys God's word. But here in this desolate, miserable, deceptive area, here Jesus is clinging to the Father's word. This is, this is a, word, a, a garden of twisted meaning. This is a, a garden of twisted words and meaning. And we live in that world. We, we live in this, just, we go to school, the, the young people go to school and you're like, really? This, socialism is the answer? Some of you are going, yes, it is. Can you give me some historical opportunities where that's occurred? Northern Europe. Every one of them is going to say it's not socialism. And you go through this and this idea of seeking truth and the twistedness of it to try to find what is true. And, and here, this, this garden in the desert is, is a garden of twisted meaning and, and twisted words. Modern cults love this garden. They love to spin you off, for, formulate their beliefs on, on Scripture that's out of context. Secular humanists love to, hey, I, I, as a pastor politician, I'll sit through a meeting and I love it when secular humanists quote scripture to me. I just listen to them. First of all, I go, hey, praise the Lord, you're bringing scripture and I don't typically do that, but that's awesome. A little out of context. Well, no, a lot out of context, but it's great that you brought it up. <laughs> and this subtle departure from truth results in the deification of everything, but not God. And ultimately, this, this departure from truth in this desert of twisted words and meanings and these mirages of life, as the world is whispering its, its, its lies to you, brings you to a place where not only does it deify you, but it also enslaves you. You deify those things that enslave you. As I said earlier, I'm not an alcoholic. I just worship the, the god of Bacchus. Study it. It's the Romans did it. Anything that possessed them, they just deified. I, I, I don't have a porn addiction. I, I just worship Aphrodite. I'm not angry. I just worship the god Mars. And you just deify the stuff that possesses you. And what's interesting is that when the Hebrew slaves came out of Egypt, the first thing that God did is he sent plagues upon Egypt in the Old Testament that were designed to show that he alone was supreme over the objects that they had deified. They worship frogs, and so he, he brought a plague of frogs. They worship flies. He brought a plague of flies. He wor they worship the Nile River. He caused it to be blood. And the temptation of the desert is to have religion without God. The temptation in the garden of the desert is to have religion without God. We've tried that. We cannot create God in our image. We've been created in his we can't pick and choose his attributes based on the way we want to see him. Trust me, 66 books of the Bible, we go through each book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are books and passages I would love to avoid. I would love to pick and choose any passage every week to try to, you know, just avoid the tough ones. But that's not the way it works. 
This is the whole counsel of God. And this, this picture of this desert of deception and religion without God is where we're tempted to be. And we have to go through this testing period to hear the voice of God and be familiar with it to avoid the lies of the world that seek to enslave us. You're bitter. You're angry. You're addicted. And you want to justify it. It's my medicine. No, it isn't. In the quietness of your own soul, you know exactly what you're dealing with. And Jesus was victorious in this desert. He didn't succumb to the temptations or the twisted words or the mirages of of a religion without God. And in the seed of redemption of of the Garden of Eden, he was preparing for a full bloom in the third garden. He took the desert, he took Eden, and he put them together, and he prepared for this full bloom in the third garden. And this third garden is exactly what the desert prepared him for. The third garden is Gethsemane. And the pain of the cross. Gethsemane is a place of crushing. It's where they would press the olives until the oil would come out. You're crushed. You're broken. You're squeezed. You have a temptation to go your own way, but now you get to this garden. You've been through that desert. You've been through that dry season. You've been through the deception and and a religion without God. You've tried everything else, and now you're at a place where you are desperate And in Eden, humanity gave in to the testing and fell. But in this desert, Jesus didn't give in to the testing. He survived it. And now it's clearly evident in this third garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had finished the Passover meal. And he was preparing for the cross. And it's at this moment you see him in his most human state. You can find it. In Matthew chapter 26, if you're taking notes, verses 36 through 45, we see him in his most human state. What I love about the Garden of Gethsemane is that we've all been there one time or another. We're being crushed. It's a painful place. It's a stressful place. It almost seems like it's an impossible place. I think in this community there are some folks that have experienced this deeply. You don't want it. It's killing you. You never asked for it. You want a way out. You want a way of escape. I think too often in the Christian life we get to Gethsemane and we just want to run. This is the depth of the Christian life. We're in this garden. As everything has left you, you've been stripped bare of all the amenities of life and the the trifle joys that the world tends to embrace and you have just been cut to the core. Your legs have been knocked out from underneath you. 
It's here where everything is stripped and you're just face to face and you're looking and you're just saying, I don't think I can do this another day. I think of the times in our marriage where Michelle and I were in some really tough Gethsemanes. And what's fascinating about that is I'm thankful that God didn't give me a way, anywhere to run to. Or I would have. There are times where I have been in gardens of Gethsemane where I have taken a way of escape. You just don't want the pain anymore. And you you find these deceptive lies that this will take care of the pain. And so you you take this way of escape and you you indulge that, that promise of painlessness only to realize that when it wears off, the pain's even greater and the relationships are broken and, 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 and there's more problems and it's exponentially worse. And then you go back to this promise of painlessness and you do it again only to realize that it's the law of diminishing return. You need more and you get less and then you find yourself addicted and you're back at this place going, God, bring me to where I'm broken. Help me. And it is a tough place to be If you doubt me, just you can look at verses 39 and 42 in Matthew 26. Jesus himself asked that the cup be taken from him. Father, if there be any other way, the sin of the world. He asked the sin of the world to be taken from him. The sin of the world contained in in this cup that he spoke of. Everyone's sin from the dawn of time. Poured out on him. I have trouble with my own trials. I don't know that I can carry yours. But he had it all. The prayer of desperation and intensity in this garden of Gethsemane. His prayer was given three times. The third time he prayed, we have no, no account of the content of that prayer. And I think this garden of Gethsemane becomes synonymous with the struggle of the Christian walk. I've been with some of you through those times. From a distance, I hurt with you. Sometimes I, I hurt for you. Sometimes I am empathetic to your pain. Sometimes I'm sympathetic to your pain. Sometimes I'm numb to your pain truly. If I'm to be honest, which I want to be always. Jesus struggled intently over this. How can we expect to visit this garden in this earthly existence and not experience that trial? The garden is synonymous with loneliness, sorrow, pain, and death. But it's there in that garden that we learn to yield to the Father. This is the secret of a fulfilling Christian walk. Jesus found it difficult to do, but he did it. He yielded. And when he yielded, you know what it resulted in? Crucifixion. Until he yielded, there could be no crucifixion. 
He was fully God, so he knew that they were going to take a cat of nine tails with flat leather cords that would be dipped in water at the end having metal shards and glass that when it would stick after hitting the human back, the leather would flatten, the metal and the glass would dig in and shred the back. Tens and tens and tens of lashings until the bone was exposed, until the blood was pouring out. They'd they'd tie his hands behind his back. They'd put a bag over his face and they'd sucker punch him. They beat him profusely. They pulled his beard out of his face. It was all awaiting him and he said yes in this garden. He would carry this cross up the Via Dolorosa with nothing left in him after the brutal beatings and an all night of prayer and what he gets in result is this mocking and humiliation and they spit upon him and they ridiculed him and he walked it all by himself and everyone who said they loved him abandoned him. And then they crucified him. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. He said yes to this. The will of the Father. They put the crown of thorns upon his skull. They lifted him. Naked, sneering at him, ridiculing him, spitting upon him. Two thieves on either side and symphonics, one finally yielding as we studied on Good Friday and and receiving him, the other rejecting him. Until he yielded in the Garden of Gethsemane, there would have never been a crucifixion. You see, the Garden of Gethsemane is a place of crushing and pressing, and it leads to the crucifixion. He literally took up his own cross. We're all called to face our own Gethsemane. The Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. If you don't face your own Gethsemane, the crucifixion will just simply be a death and nothing more. And we're all going to die. We have to come to a place where we submit to the will of the Father and trust Him. Is there any other way Otherwise, we're just on a road to death. God says, I'm going to make something beautiful out of this. I think the correct time for all of us in facing our Gethsemane, I love this, when you call out to God and say, Lord, no man takes my life. I willingly lay it down to you and you alone. I don't understand it. I don't get it, but I give you my life. Be edified. Lord, I yield to the crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. You you take my bitterness and you give me forgiveness. You take my, my anger and you give me joy. You take my ashes, you give me beauty. But it's not until I have yielded and I have been crucified. Lord, I want to wring their neck. Do you know what they did? And Christ on the cross with a dying breath said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He had already given that up in Gethsemane. You're just going to die bitter until you have faced the garden of Gethsemane. We yield. It's not just an obedience that obeys orders. It's far higher and it's a rare kind of obedience. It's a concert between the Father and the Son. Thy will be done. It's, it's a concert between God and his create, cre- creation. It's a matter of all things being wrapped up in yieldedness. God, I yield. 
and that uniqueness of yielding to his will and not our own is a redemption of what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Lord, whatever comes, however bad the circumstances get, I am yielded to you. I have to tell you, there's some folks that are experiencing this, and it is rough. But what happens is the two wills agree. That's what's made 29 years of marriage with Michelle so special. Oh, we have conflicts. But we endeavor, we go through the Garden of Gethsemane, we're pressed, and, and those words come, I'm sorry, I've hurt you, will you forgive me? And it's in that dying that this new life is created. Two wills agree. Once in disagreement, our wills are settled and we become one. Having the same love, being of like mind, let the mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you. You yield in Gethsemane. And this disagreement is settled in the Garden of Gethsemane. Don't worry, I'll finish on time. Christ crosses the hill from which our garden is addressed. He could see it. He walked to it. And from that cross, as he hung there, yielded to the Father, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You can't come to this fourth garden without passing through Gethsemane. And the fourth garden is this one. It's the garden tomb. It's my favorite place to visit in all of Israel. Not, not the site of the Holy Sepulcher. That is where Orthodox come and there's all kinds of trinkets and baubles and distractions for my limited ADD mind. I, I don't find peace when I go there and people are genuflecting and there's incense burning and it means a lot to a lot of people and I don't dismiss that, please. And, and I can't say that that's the site and I can't say that Gordon's Calvary is a site but every time I walk into this garden right here, I am so deeply moved. It's Gordon's Calvary. It is, it is so beautiful. It takes my breath away. I have witnessed lives transformed having come through this trial of Gethsemane and they walk into this garden with all the trials of life and we sit there, we take communion and people are weeping and lives are touched. It is a beautiful place. In the first garden, we were introduced to the sin of humanity and the seed of salvation. In the second garden, it allowed us to see the seed in human form withstand the tests of Satan in the third garden, we witness a titanic struggle of Jesus surrendering his will to the fathers and then leading to the cross. And now we enter this last garden behind me. And you can't enter it without first coming to the cross. You have to surrender yourself at Gethsemane. You have to yield and let God be the Lord of your life. But you know what's fascinating about this garden? Once you enter into this garden, your life will never be the same. And that brings us to the reading. And I think I have it here. I've got seven minutes, watch. (laughs) John 20. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. While it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved. And said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciples and were going to the tomb. So they ran, they both ran together and the other disciples outran Peter because he was fat and out of shape and came to the, first, to the tomb first. 
And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, out of breath, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Kids, pay attention. Fold your clothes. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scriptures, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own houses. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And there she saw two angels in white, sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. We've all been reconciled. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. I want to close by sharing with you some thoughts of other writers as we enter into this fourth garden This garden was new life for Jesus, one not shackled by the forces of the past. All that limited him in this natural order was destroyed with the crucifixion. And listen to this, please. It touched me, and I pray it does you as well. Jesus' crucifixion was not an execution, but rather a liberation. The essence of crucifixion is that it is a portal to pass through to come into the fullness of the resurrection. At this moment, your Lord walks and lives in resurrection. He lives beyond. I have a couple more, and I've lost my notes. Here they are. No. Yes. No. Yes. This is, this is precious to me, and I, I thought of folks as I put this together, and I pray it ministers to you. Christ lives beyond the worst that can happen. He lives beyond the worst that can happen because the very worst happened to him. He lives beyond death. What is the difference between life and resurrected life? You can kill life, but you cannot kill divine life which passes through death. You cannot kill divine life that is on the other side of the crucifixion. There's nothing that can touch that life. When you've risen from the dead, nothing can touch you. When you've been hit by the worst possible circumstances and you rise in victory from out of the ashes, their power has been broken. There's no other enemy who is as great as death, but Jesus Christ was slain by death and then he slew death and rose again. Death is less than what Christ is. In this garden, we are forever changed. We are alive forevermore.
Now nothing will ever again deter us from praising his name. I loved your response in that last song and how your hearts were touched by this reality. This resurrection life awaits you and is here this morning, ready to transform you. And then I wrote these last thoughts. We've all been to the first garden, amen? Amen. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in need of repentance. That just means change. Those of us who've accepted Christ as Lord and Savior have been to the second garden, the garden of testing. Yes? One, One time or another, I'm sure we've all failed there. I know I have and continue to. But the garden tomb is open to all of us today, and that comes by yielding ourselves in Gethsemane to trust Him, even when things don't make sense. You have questions? Bring them to the Lord. You have pain? Bring that too. He'll take it all. Today's an acceptable day of salvation. And this means a transformed life. From death unto life. No longer will you have fear. You'll go forth in a higher and deeper purpose. And you'll live this resurrected life. And all it simply means is to realize that these four gardens have today brought you to a place where God is ready to restore that relationship he created you to have from day one. His body was broken, his blood was shed so that you could be reconciled and have this relationship because you know what? He says, come to me all you are burdened, heavy laden. And you know what burdened and heavy laden is? You're all alone. And you were created for relationship. And God wants to reconcile you to himself and to each other. He wants you to love the people you don't. He wants to heal this world. That means you're going to have to die to those things that you have been declaring as your right. There's only one arbitrator of good and evil, and that's the Lord. He's in charge. You don't get to make the rules. You're either going to be your own God or you're going to yield to the God who created you to love Him and for Him to love you. All the gardens are declared, but today... The tomb is empty. He's beaten death. And that is the beauty of the garden tomb. And that life awaits you as well. Amen.